Hello, and welcome to another episode of All the Hacks, a show about upgrading your life, money, and travel. I'm your host, Chris Hutchins, and today, in honor of it being the season of giving, I want to share one of the most interesting and inspiring stories I've ever heard and talk a bit about water and how helping the one in 10 people who don't have access to clean water might be one of the greatest hacks we'll ever discuss on this show. Why? Well, when it comes to health, diseases from dirty water kill more people every year than all forms of violence, including war. And every day, women and girls who happen to be responsible for water collection in 8 of 10 households around the world spend an estimated 200 million hours collecting water each day. That's time taken away from education, work, community development, and family. Providing clean water is more than a solution to just drinking water. It is a key to unlocking potential and fighting poverty around the world. But don't take that lesson just from me. Listen to this conversation with my friend Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water, who after a decade of indulging in the darkest vices as a nightclub promoter, turned everything about his life around and has since raised almost a billion dollars and helped over 17 million people get access to clean water in 29 countries around the world. He'll not only share that story, but we'll talk about evaluating charities, the power of storytelling, setting personal goals, gratitude, and a lot more. This may not be a typical All the Hacks episode, but I promise it's one you'll remember. In fact, even though I've known Scott and Charity Water for years, this conversation was so impactful that Amy and I decided we wanted to get more involved this year. So we're running a campaign through Daffy to raise $10,000, which is what it takes to fund a water project in one community. And Amy and I are personally going to match the first $5,000 we raised to help get to our $10,000 goal. Or maybe Maybe we can go past that goal and do two, three, or even more projects. Who knows? But we are excited to see what's possible. So if you want to consider giving to the campaign, you can go to allthehacks.com slash water. And like I said, we're doing this whole campaign through our partner Daffy, which is the platform Amy and I have been using for years to do all our charitable giving more efficiently. They do that by helping you set up a special tax advantaged account called a donor advised fund or DAF, which works whether you're giving a few hundred dollars to charity each year or even hundreds of thousands. Now, to participate in this fundraiser, you don't need to set up a donor-advised fund at Daffy. You can contribute directly, but if you want to set up a donor-advised fund with Daffy first, you can get an extra $25 to donate to this or any other cause once you make your first contribution at allthehacks.com slash Daffy, D-A-F-F-Y. And once you're all set up, you can head back to our campaign at allthehacks.com slash water to contribute and get your match. Both those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for your support. Let's jump into the episode right after this. Our sponsor today, Trade Coffee, can help you nail holiday gift giving this year. A subscription to Trade is the perfect gift for any coffee lover. You just choose how much to spend, and Trade will help your recipient personalize the coffee exactly to their preferences. Best of all, Trade's gift subscriptions cut out the worry around shipping deadlines as the digital subscription is delivered instantly to their inbox. And if you're not familiar, Trade is a subscription service that sources the best coffee around the country and brings it to your doorstep. They've built relationships with over 50 local roasters so you can enjoy their craft from the comfort of your own home. There's multiple ways to experience coffee with Trade. Sign up for a subscription or try one of their starter packs today. 
We've been using Trade for over a year and absolutely love how easy and convenient it's been to get delicious coffee delivered right to our door. And the Huckleberry Roasters coffee we got recently was amazing. Give the gift of better coffee at home. From now to December 25th, Trade is offering 15% off gift subscriptions at allthehacks.com slash trade. Shop now through Christmas Day to save. That's allthehacks.com slash trade for 15% off all gift subscriptions through Christmas Day. Allthehacks.com slash trade. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's good to be here, Chris. I've been looking forward to this. This will be fun. Yes. For so many people, they've seen you, they know Charity Water, but they don't know the story. And I think there's a lot of things I want to dive into that mean going back to the beginning and understanding where you came from, because it's not the same story that most people go through. Well, I think Act One is a pretty bizarre childhood. When I was four, I was born in Philadelphia, middle-class family. Dad was a business guy. My mom was a writer. And we moved into this really ugly gray house at the end of a cul-de-sac in the dead of winter. My parents were going to have a big family there, and it was close to my dad's job, so he had a small commute. You know, these were all the concerns at the time. And the house was advertised as energy efficient, which was great, except the house came with a carbon monoxide gas leak. So we move in, and we all start getting headaches. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom, and she collapses, and she crumples to the floor. So she's the canary in the coal mine which leads to a series of blood tests, which leads to the discovery of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream, which then leads to the leak, which was in the basement. And it was this faulty heat exchanger. And I remember my dad ripped it out with an HVAC guy and he threw it on the sidewalk. But unfortunately, the damage was just done specifically for my mom. And she just never recovered. She never bounced back from that. My dad and I bounced back from our symptoms. But What happened to her was her immune system was irreparably destroyed and her body was no longer able to process chemicals, process anything toxic. So I think the best way to describe it from this point on, she just lived in a bubble. She lived in one room, isolated. She wore a 3M mask, like an N95, really for the rest of her life. And family planning stopped. So I grew up this only child very quickly now in a caregiver role, helping to cook for mom, helping to clean, helping try to make her as comfortable as possible. And maybe just to give everybody one story that I remember as a kid. I remember mom, she was a writer, so she loved to read. And she was so frustrated that now the ink from books would make her sick. So as a kid, I would either bake her books in the oven to try to get that smell of new print out, Or I would put them out in the backyard and flip the pages throughout the day so that the sun would kind of bake them. And then I would walk up to the second floor and she was living in a bathroom that was covered with aluminum foil. She slept on a cot that had been washed in baking soda 20 times. And I remember she would open the door kind of with this crinkle sound and she would be wearing her mask and her glasses. She'd be wearing cotton gloves. She would take the book from me and she would put it inside a cellophane bag shut the door, and then she was able to read. So just weird, Chris. My parents were devout Christians, kind of non-denominational Christians. So they had a really authentic faith that they would certainly attribute as the only way that they stayed married and kept the family together. 
and I was actually actively raised in the church. So I would go on Sundays and I would play piano, you know, in Sunday school. And I was just a good kid growing up. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't sleep around. I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up and I was going to cure mom and other people I'd met like her. So that was kind of act one. Act two was a big detour from that. At 18, I start acting out this cliche prodigal son rebellion story. And I grow my hair down on my shoulders. I join a rock band and I move to New York City. And the band immediately breaks up because we all hated each other. But I stumble into this occupation in New York City nightlife. And I realized that if a person wanted to rebel, uh, you could rebel in style as a nightclub promoter. And all you had to do was get the right, beautiful, famous people inside the club alongside people with money. And then you could sell them a $25 cocktail or, or a $1,000 bottle of champagne that cost you only 40 And act two, that was the next 10 years of my life. Running around New York City, packing nightclubs. I wound up working at 40 different nightclubs, really to the horror and sadness of my parents who saw their good virginal Christian kid, you know, now out there smoking 40 cigarettes a day, doing drugs, going to strip clubs, drinking problem, just a total hedonistic mess. And it was really at the end of that 10 years where I realized, wow, I'm a mess. And I've really become emotionally bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I've come so far from this real foundation that my parents had tried to lay for me in my childhood as helping others this idea of being a doctor. I'd served nobody but myself for 10 years. And that really led me to this moment of cathartic self-discovery and saying, I need a change. This is not working out. And I've got to go not find a pivot here. I need to explore a 180 degree change. You know, what's the opposite of everything I've been doing for 10 years? What's the opposite of everything I've been thinking and speaking? And being a pretty radical guy, I had this one idea. What if I sold everything I owned and I volunteered for one year on a humanitarian mission? What if I gave back one year of the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted and could I be useful? So it was pretty quick. I remember from the dial-up internet cafe, putting in all these applications to the famous humanitarian organizations I had tangentially heard of, the Save the Children's and Oxfam's and Doctors Without Borders and World Visions and Red Crosses of the World. And then I put in my 10 applications and I waited. And maybe no surprise to anybody listening, I'm denied by all 10 organizations. Turns out they are not looking for nightclub promoters or ex-nightclub promoters to work alongside. And I just remember being so sad, so disappointed that I thought I was ready for change. I take this first step and nobody will have me. Well, I was very fortunate that there was one organization that actually at first denied me and then they were about to start their mission and they couldn't fill that position. So they went back through the rejected resumes and they called me up and said, if I'm willing to pay them $500 a month, and if I'm willing to go live in the poorest country in the world, a country called Liberia in West Africa, then I could join their humanitarian mission. And the role that they had for me was a photojournalist. Now, I was technically not a photojournalist, but I had gone to NYU part-time. I'd gotten a communications degree. 
And I was a pretty decent photographer and a pretty decent writer. So, my life changed so dramatically as I left nightlife and set foot in the poorest country in the world, a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage system, no mail system, a country that had just come out of a 14-year civil war. And I joined this mission of humanitarian doctors and surgeons, people who had come from 40 countries to volunteer their time and offer free medical services to people who couldn't afford it, where those services didn't exist. And that really was the beginning of Act 3, which then eventually led to my discovery of the need for clean water and then founding Charity Water. When it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you've already filed, being proactive right now to lower your future liability is so important. And now that I'm working with Gelt, I feel like I finally have a partner I can trust to handle everything for my personal and business taxes, and I'm excited to be partnering with them today. Think of Gelt as the ultimate modern CPA. They not only offer an amazing tech platform that gives you personalized guidance to maximize deductions, tax credits, and savings, but also it's so easy to communicate with them. There's an in-house team of expert CPAs who can recommend the most effective tax strategies to minimize risk and grow your wealth. And my favorite story is that when we first onboarded with Gelt, they reviewed our past returns and found a huge mistake our prior CPA had made. So they refiled and got us back all that money. So if you're ready for a more premium, proactive tax strategy to optimize and file your taxes, you have to check out Gelt. And as an All The Hacks listener, you can skip the wait list. Just head to allthehacks.com slash gelt. That's G-E-L-T. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash G-E-L-T to stop overpaying on taxes. There are only a few brands I use almost every single day, and Viore is one of them. And I am so excited to be partnering with them for this episode. Viore makes performance apparel that's incredibly versatile. Everything is designed to work out in, but it doesn't look or feel like it at all. And it is so freaking comfortable, you will want to wear it all the time. Seriously, I'm pretty sure it's more comfortable than whatever you're wearing right now, unless it's Viore, in which case you know what I mean. And it's not just for men. My wife, Amy, is as obsessed with Viore as I am. My personal favorite is the Sunday Performance Joggers. I think I have three pairs of them, and they're probably the most comfortable pants I've ever owned. Their products are incredibly versatile and can be used for just about any activity, whether it's running, training, yoga, but they're also great for lounging, or I even wear their Meta Pants out to a nice dinner. Honestly, I think Viore is an investment in your happiness, and for all the Hacks listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase, as well as free shipping and returns on any U.S. order over $75. So definitely check them out at allthehacks.com slash Viore. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash V-U-O-R-I, and get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. So we're going to get through to a lot of these things, and... When I think about that hard change you made, did something inspire you? Did it build up over time? I know countless people who don't feel like they're doing their life's work and they haven't hit that moment. Maybe they also haven't been as far from their life's work in their previous career as you were. But what advice do you have for that transition point? I think it did build up over time. And then there was this catalyst where I remember I started having some health issues. And one day, half my body went numb. And I, I couldn't feel my hand or my arm. I remember walking over my loft, turning on the water, steaming hot water in the sink. And I put my hand and arm under it and I can't feel anything. 
So I am convinced something is terribly wrong with me. I have some brain tumor. I have some incurable disease and I'm going to die. And that actually led me to really consider existential questions of the heaven and hell that I was raised with as a kid, questions about legacy, questions about did it matter that I was here at all? What had I done for others? It turned out that nobody could find anything wrong with me. So after a series of brain tests and MRIs and EKG scans, it could have been my lifestyle of going to dinner at 10, going to the club at 12, going to the after hours to do cocaine from 5 to noon, and then taking Ambien you know, at 1 p.m. to come down. <laughs> Might have had something to do with my body just crying out and shutting down, or at least half of it. But that was an event that I think caused me to really stop and take stock of life and legacy and want to just change everything, you know, not even get back on track, you know, create a completely new path or a new track. And when you created that path, you didn't know what it would be. And I think a lot of people assume that if I don't love what I'm doing, I need to find what I love before I can make a change. Would you argue that maybe that is incorrect common wisdom? I completely stumbled into it. You know, I should say when I went to join this medical mission, I quit all the stuff that I mentioned. I remember having my last cigarette. I remember saying, I'm never going to touch drugs again. I'm never going to look at a pornographic image again. I really want to kind of shed all of these vices that have gripped me for a decade. And what was so important for me was also changing community and environment. It was much easier not to smoke two packs of Marlboro Reds or get high when you're surrounded by humanitarian doctors. Not so easy when your job is nightlife and filling clubs five nights a week. So for me, I think I was so fortunate that the intention was there to change, but then my environment also changed. I don't know that I would have had the self-control to just quit all that stuff cold turkey while I'm still surrounded by you know thousands of drunk partying people. And you probably didn't know the goal going into this one-year adventure was to get into charitable work for your life. It was just to reset and start over, I guess. Correct. It's just where it took me. Yeah. And in fact, at the end of the year, I just signed up for another year because I just didn't know what was next. But I wanted more life, more impact like this. And the cool thing, Chris, was when I landed in Liberia as a photojournalist for this medical mission... I had about 15,000 emails that I brought with me. And back then, email open rates were close to 100%. I was taking this whole group of people that I had invited to 40 different clubs over a decade and was sharing what I was seeing. They were living vicariously through this guy that they had known and partied with, who is now embedded with really badass, life-changing doctors and surgeons in this country, you know, that's 14 years post-war and with these people trying to pick up the pieces and serve some of the greatest human needs, you know, maybe even on the planet at that time. So, you know, I, I joke that there were certainly a few unsubscribes <laughs> in the beginning. You know, people were saying, look, that Prada party that you, you know, that was awesome. That store, store party you threw for the opening, you know, or that MTV thing you did with Perry Farrell was awesome, but I'm not signing up for cleft lips and cleft tumors. That was really the small minority. Maybe the ability to tell stories visually of what I was seeing actually grew the list and people began to donate money and sponsor surgeries and then people began to volunteer 
and say, well, if Scott can go and find a way to be useful, I work at Chanel. I'd like some of that feeling of purpose in my life as well. So I was kind of able to redeem some of the things that I learned over those 10 years, even though they were directed selfishly or they were directed in a hedonistic way. I think the thing that I had learned was how to tell stories. The story I was telling then, Chris, was get past my velvet rope, get seen by us looking through the one-way glass, get picked to come in, then sit with all the beautiful, rich, famous people, spend a whole lot of money, and your life has great meaning. You have arrived. I'd gotten so good at telling that story that I was just telling the wrong story. So when I started telling a very different story of doctors who had passionately given up their vacation time, who had not flown to the Four Seasons in the Maldives, but had come to the poorest country in the world for a couple months to serve and get nothing in return. People were really moved by that, but the skill uh, had been learned in a, in a very different environment, maybe. Yeah. You talked about the person at Chanel trying to have a bit more purpose. At what point in time did you find that doing this was your purpose? Or I guess, what is your purpose now? Well, I think almost immediately. I loved it. I mean, I remember getting asked a lot, oh, isn't it hard? You're living in this 120 square foot cabin with two roommates. And the ship was not a cruise liner. This was not a carnival cruise. The thing was 53 years old, had rats and mice and cockroaches. And it was a very, very old, broken down ship, which actually had to be retired a couple of years later. But I was so inspired by being surrounded with people who served others. I think it was really that simple, who were just asking the question, how can I take what I've been blessed with? How can I take my time, my talent, my money and use it to help others, use it to end some of this needless suffering out there in the world? So I think it was just surrounded, Chris, with people with the exact opposite intention for the life I'd lived for 10 years and the lives of the people that I was curating or that I was surrounded, which was really how much pleasure can we bring to ourself at any given moment of any given day and all the moments of all the days versus how can we help? How can we serve? And do you think that is a formula for a more fulfilling life? I'm very careful to you know tell others. I mean, I think I have my personal experience. I have found there's a real freedom that comes with service. We've had donors over the years. You know, someone's about to go buy a BMW and we'll come across Charity Water and we'll buy a Toyota Prius instead and donate the difference, you know, to go help a couple communities get access to clean water. So I have seen sacrificial giving. I've seen purpose-driven work improve the lives of so many people now through our community. We've had millions of donors around the world. I believe so. You know, certainly true for me and certainly true from what I've observed. I will say, Chris, like there was never enough. Yes, somebody always had a more beautiful girlfriend who was more famous. Somebody always had a better car, a better plane. If I was with a group of people gambling $10,000 a hand at blackjack, somebody else was gambling $100,000 a hand. So it was this insatiable lust for more, but there was no end point. And looking back at that, there was never going to be enough. And in fact, I still know people who are out at the clubs and they are now dating girls younger than their daughters, you know, just continually looking for more, looking for more, looking for those markers of success, knowing that somebody's always got a little bit more than you. And it's, it's not like that when you embrace a life of service. 
I guess it's more to a different degree. There's more work to be done. One of my favorite quotes somebody sent me from a New York City bodega like almost 20 years ago. And it was a sign outside of Delhi that says, do not be afraid of work with no end. And that's really how I see, you know, 17 years at Charity Water now is there's always another person to help. There's always another community that needs clean water. Let's say we get to the end of the water crisis, which I truly believe is possible and I truly hope we do. People are always asking me, so you're just going to put yourself out of business, right? Oh, charity should put themselves out of business. I think that's one of the stupidest concepts I've ever heard. We've helped 17 million people get clean water. If we get to 100 million served, 300 million served, if we eradicate this problem, I would hope we would take everything we have learned over decades of working with donors, building trust, building relationship. I would hope we'd take everything we've learned operating in 30 really difficult countries around the world and we'd say, great, everybody now has water. What else could we do together? What else could we do with our donors? What else could we do with our team members and all this expertise? Are there people hungry? Are there people without access to healthcare? Are there people that don't have a roof over their heads? Let's take everything we've learned. Let's go focus on that next critical human need or that next group of people who are needlessly suffering rather than let's drop the mic, shut down the organization and, and go all try to become you know millionaires finally. Well, let's talk about that because you know the mission is never ending, right? You've dedicated yourself and, and the organization you built to a life of service. There's no end in sight, right? There will always probably be something, unfortunately, that the world needs to be less suffering and people in a better place. How do you make time for yourself in that world? You mentioned, you know, the selfishness of your past. Is a little bit of selfishness okay? Can you take yourself out to dinner? Can you go on a vacation? Or because you've been so close to it, I can't remember the number, but it's, you know, a very small amount of money each month to provide someone with water. So how do you not want to give everything? It's personality. I'm both optimistic, but I'm also very pragmatic. And I think maybe, you know, my experience in 10 years of clubs has helped me take a long view at this. And I realized going out to dinner with my wife is really important. Going out to family dinners is important for our family. There are certain things that I try to be a really, really good steward of money. I know a lot of people are a fan of your travel hacks. And we were talking about this offline before. You know, I, I'm on about 100 planes a year and I just fly coach. We have never used a single donor dollar to fly me or any other executive, you know, or anybody at the organization in business class because we take that extra money, which in my case would be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and we put that back in the mission. So there are certain things that you're taking an austerity stance on. But, you know, there are other things that I mean, I think I live a pretty normal life. You know, I've got a nine year old and a seven year old and I have one that's nine weeks old now. We had our surprise third. I'm almost 50. My wife's 40. But, you know, I really think about just making sure my kids are able to go play sports and live in a safe house in a safe neighborhood. And, you know, when they need bikes, I go and buy them bikes. I'm not thinking, oh my gosh, if my nine-year-old goes without a bike, I can go give two more people in Africa access to clean water. I think I kind of take a long, sustainable view. If my family is healthy, if my relationship with my wife is healthy, and I'm probably going to be able to do this a whole lot longer and hopefully impact the lives of hundreds of millions of people by sustaining the energy or the passion or the mission. I spend a lot of time 
in proximity to extraordinary wealth. And I know it does not make people happy. The most unhappy people I know are some of the wealthiest people that I know. And just because, you know, you've got hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars does not make for a healthy, flourishing relationship, family, you know, holistic life. So there's no mystery, I think, around money or capital that I'm chasing anymore. In fact, sometimes even the opposite. And how has that changed your own outlook on building, you know, your wealth or saving? We have one family that gives to us that I'm really inspired by. They are a family in Texas. They've given over $13 million to Charity Water. And the family caps their spending at $180,000 a year. This is a family of four. And that's just the number. You know, I think the house is paid for and their couple cars are paid for, but they just don't spend any more than $180,000 a year. And they give away everything else, everything from investments, everything from he was a successful businessman. And I'm really inspired by that. I appreciate the extremes. We were talking earlier about, I think you've got a family member who's a Franciscan monk. That is compelling to me. I will say this, in the fundraising business, I find sometimes people who have a really unhealthy view of money will then shame people who do have money and they become terrible fundraisers. Nobody wants to be around them. You know, you don't get invited to go on a vacation with somebody who has the capacity to give you a million dollars or $10 million, $50 million, if you're going to make them feel judged, if you're going to make them feel terrible about themselves. Maybe it has to do with my past or what I was able to do in New York for 10 years or just a lot of the people that I'm in relationship with now at Charity Water. I look at wealth as an opportunity to do more good in the world. Wealth as an opportunity to serve, to put that money to work in human flourishing, in ending suffering. And it's my job when I'm around people who have extraordinary wealth or middle-class wealth to tell compelling enough stories to create a compelling organization that can be a vehicle for turning their money into the transformation of human life and then creating a circle back to them so that they know it happened. And if I can do all that, which I've been trying to do for you know, almost 20 years, you know, we find we're restoring a lot of people's faith in charity. Now, charity means love. It's a really beautiful word that has become something that many people are skeptical or cynical about. I remember when I started, 42% of Americans pulled by USA Today said they didn't trust charities. More recent you know, New York University study found 70% of Americans believe charities waste their money in some part, waste their donations. So, so many of the things that we've tried to do at Charity Water is restore that lost faith and you know, almost get people addicted to generosity. And it could be generosity of time. It could be generosity of money. It could be both. Where do I start? Help desk software, payment software, email marketing tools, CMS and blogging tools, SEO tools, deal management tracking, pipeline tracking. You do not need more tools to get more out of your business. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform is the ultimate business hack for all your customer-facing teams. You can create best-in-class campaigns and automate outreach with workflows that will generate more qualified leads for your business. HubSpot will also keep track of every prospect with category-leading pipeline management so you can close more deals. Finally, you can use powerful AI chatbots and develop a knowledge base to scale your support. 
HubSpot is built to deliver results, drive more revenue, and to help your business grow faster than you ever thought was possible. Try it for yourself today at HubSpot.com. Again, go check out HubSpot.com today. Now that I have kids, I want to be more focused at work so I can spend more time with them, and I want to have a stronger immune system for all the crap they bring home from school, which is why if you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been drinking AG1 for about two years. When I started drinking AG1 daily, it was to help with daily nutrition, but I also felt a real difference in the energy I had every day, so it's been in my routine ever since. And that's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. Most of all, I love that AG1 takes all the guesswork out of trying to combine the right supplements and provide multiple products in one easy scoop. Not to mention, it tastes great, especially shaken with ice, which is why I trust it to provide my body the support it needs daily and also why I'm excited that they've been a partner of the show for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to allthehacks.com slash AG1. That's allthehacks.com slash AG1. Check it out. I just want to thank you quick for listening to and supporting the show. Your support is what keeps this show going. To get all of the URLs, codes, deals, and discounts from our partners, you can go to allthehacks.com slash deals. So please consider supporting those who support us. The thing that I first learned about Charity Water that made me realize you guys were different is that you have two separate sources for money, right? One covers all the overhead, all the way down to the credit card processing fees. And then the other is just directly to go towards causes. I mean, I think that was an intentional decision early on, but how much of your success do you think would you attribute to, you know, in my mind, there's two things. You've ran it completely differently and then you've become masterful at storytelling. But how do you think about those two things? And, and is maybe there another thing that, that you think drove such success? That's right. Well, yeah, when I started, I was 30. I'd just come back from two years in Africa as a photojournalist. And I think I had the advantage, Chris, of not knowing anything about how to build a charity or run a charity. And I didn't really know anyone in institutional philanthropy. I know people who worked at Goldman Sachs or at Sephora or at MTV VH1 at the time, everyday people. And I remember actually going and buying nonprofits for dummies, the yellow book, how do you start a 501c3? What is a 501c3? Okay, we need some lawyers and you have to file this application with the federal government and you need a board. And I really had no idea at the beginning. But I think that then allowed me to go out and do just some informal market research. And as I talked to my friends, they loved the noble mission of getting everybody on earth clean water. I mean, everybody I talked to could stand for clean water for humans. Republicans and Democrats and people of faith and people who are agnostic or atheists, like everybody could think water is a good idea for people. But really this pervasive underlying skepticism, everyone also seemed to have a horror story of a charity gone wrong, a charity where the money didn't get to the people 
that it was intended to get to or a charity where, you know, they'd hired aunts and uncles and distant relatives and was just you know, racked with nepotism. So, the model for Charity Water really came out of just listening to everyday people. I said, well, what would make you compelled to give? And the 100% model just came out of that. Well, people said, if I knew that 100% of what I gave would actually help people, I'd be more likely to give. I said, all right, well, well, this just needs to look like two separately audited bank accounts. And in one bank account, I'm going to raise my hand and go try to find business leaders and entrepreneurs who are not skeptical and actually who wouldn't mind paying those unsexy overhead costs like staff salaries and office rent and phone bills and the toner for the Epson copy machine if they knew we were efficient with those donations and transparent. And then I can go out to the public and say, great, not your problem. If you give a dollar or a million dollars, every single penny, every dollar will go directly to build these water projects, which get people clean water. And as you mentioned, you know, so that there would be kind of perfect integrity with the 100% model, we said, we'll even pay back your credit card fees. So if you give 100 bucks on your Amex, sadly, we get 96, but we will pay that $4 back from the overhead account and we'll send your $100 to the field. And then the second thing that came out of listening was people wanted just to see where their money went. So we said, all right, well, we're going to prove where this money goes. Money's not fungible. We can build technology in the water bank account where all the public is giving towards, and we could track a $92 donation to a well in Malawi or a $114 donation to a spring protection in Nepal. And we actually became the first charity in the world just to geolocate all of our completed water projects up on Google Earth and then later Google Maps. So there was this theme of hyper transparency. But you know, again, could we wrap that with a story? And then the third pillar was just this belief that, yeah, I remember looking around the sector and saying, where are the apples of charity? Where's the Nike? Where's the Virgin? Or later, where's the Tesla? Where are these inspiring, imaginative, creative brands that capture the imagination of people? And I saw a lot of shame and guilt-based marketing. I saw a lot of charities with Bad websites and terrible checkout forms and PDFs that they expected people to read, you know, white papers about their issue. So I think this just came through listing and these became really core distinctives for Charity Water, the 100% model, always looking for ways to connect people to their money, proving it, trying to build this really inspiring design forward brand. And then maybe the most important thing was really what we wouldn't do. We wouldn't send anyone that looked like me over to Africa or India or Southeast Asia to go drill wells. And I believed just from day one for this work to be culturally appropriate, for it to be sustainable in the long run, it had to be led by the locals in each of these countries where we worked. And if we were successful, we would help grow the teams of local hydrogeologists and local well drillers and technicians. And as we scaled, we would create thousands of local jobs in the process and they would be the ones leading their communities and leading their countries forward in the future. They'd also be the ones getting the credit. And that's, you know, maybe what I've been really most proud of. 17 years later, we employ well over 2,500 people through our partner network now across 21 active countries. And they are taking the money that we're raising and turning it into clean water for the people living in their communities and their countries every single day. 
So just to kind of finish on this, day one, I put all these things together and my best idea for the launch of Charity Water was to get a nightclub donated during fashion week and to get open bar donated and then to just email everyone I knew and invite them to my 31st birthday party. And 700 people came, probably less for me, more for the club and the open bar. And on their way in, we put out this big plexi box and they had to drop $20 in the box to get in the club. And at the end of the night, we'd collected $15,000 and we took 100% of the money to a refugee camp in northern Uganda. We built our very first well and then we sent the photo proof and the GPS coordinates and the satellite images back to the 700 people who came. And we said, you came, you gave $20, it mattered and here, watch, see, see the impact you made. And I mean, that sounds so simple, but nobody else was doing that at the time. And it turned out to be such a competitive advantage in the early days. You had no experience in this space and have built, you know, not the biggest, but definitely one of the most innovative charities that I'm familiar with. I want to jump into a few lessons because it seems like, wow, you just did this one thing and then it took off from there. I know you've had your fair share of setbacks along the way. So you were passionate about this space, but I know that takes patience and resilience. How do you handle that? And in what advice would you give to people who are dealing with similar things in life, whether it's charities or anything, just to build that resilience in their own pursuits? Well, a lot of things didn't work. I remember, you know, the 100% model sounds great until you run out of people who are willing to pay for overhead. (laughs) So we had this moment about a year and a half in where we were raising so much money for clean water projects because the 100% model was resonating with the everyday public. But I just couldn't find people to hire that next incremental staff member soon enough. And I'll never remember, there was this really pivotal moment. We had $881,000 in the water bank account that was headed out to the field to build projects. And we had a couple weeks left in the overhead account to make payroll. And I remember the advice I was getting from people was to go borrow against the 881K. You know, write a little IOU and transfer between accounts because you got to pay your people and, you know, you'll figure this out later. And I remember calling lawyers and I was going to start to unwind the charity and just say, this doesn't work. This is an untenable model. You know, I guess unless you have a huge amount of capital to start with or a billionaire backer. But I remember thinking if we borrowed one penny of the public's money and violated that promise, even if we paid it back later, there would just be a crack in the foundation of our integrity. And I didn't want to run that organization. I would rather fail and try again with maybe the traditional business model where you put all the money in one account. And we were very fortunate at that time. I met a young entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and I remember taking a meeting with him. He was interested in what we were doing. And I remember thinking the meeting went terribly. And at the end of the meeting, he asked for our bank account details. And then three days later, he shot me a note well after midnight saying, I enjoyed meeting you, you know, really love the passion, love the work. I just wired a million dollars into your overhead account. And we went from insolvent, weeks away from insolvency, to over a year of operating capital. And we really never looked back. Had that not happened, I'm probably not having this conversation with you. And what helped me so much was I think, one, I fell back on our values. And I would have been proud 
to hold my head high and shut the organization down and just say this didn't work, but at least not compromise. And besides the money, that million dollars, which was so needed at the time, it was also that somebody believed in me. And he believed that this was a tenable model. We just needed more time. We needed more time to work it out. And today, there are 131 families who pay the overhead. And that grows every single year. We invite 10 or 15 new people in. And, you know, we've never really looked back uh, after that moment, after that time that forced us to be creative. It forced us to come up with a multi-year, multi-tier operations giving program. And now we have so many people that actually prefer to give that way. They would prefer to support a software engineer or a UI UX designer than actually give directly to the water projects. Now, can you give money the other way? If you have too much in the overhead, do you just save it for the rainy day? Well, we never have too much in the overhead, Chris. (laughs) We never have too much in the overhead. It's always a slightly harder proposition. But all that to say, we're not going bankrupt. You know, we're always trying to grow that group. That is where all the growth capital comes from. So unless we grow the amount of people who are willing to give on that side, we can't grow the team. We really can't grow, you know, the scale of the organization. But I think in resiliency, you're talking about staying the course. So we're 17 years in and we've now helped 17.4 million people get access to clean water, about 137,000 villages around the world. On my bad days, I try to fill Madison Square Garden with 17 million people. And you would have to build about a thousand Madison Square Gardens. So, you know, Charity Water has sold out Staples Center or the Garden or, you know, O2 Arena in London about a thousand times to contain the amount of people who now have water. 99% of my time, I put that 17 million against the 700 million and it's 140th. Yes, two and a half percent of the way to goal because goal really is creating a world where no one drinks disgusting water. No human being alive, as we're recording a podcast, is risking their life, is poisoning themselves simply because of the environment they were born into. And especially because we know how to solve this problem. That's what makes this both wonderful and energizing and also frustrating is there are a lot of problems, Chris, we don't know how to solve. My mom eventually died of pancreatic cancer. It was four months from diagnosis to death. They had absolutely no idea how to help her. We don't know how to solve ALS or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's yet. We know how to solve water for people. There's not a single one of the 700 million people out there where we're scratching our heads saying, I just couldn't help them, would know how to get them water. Now, we haven't created the will to solve the problem. We haven't allocated the resources to solve the problem, but we actually know how to do it. So, you know, I really kind of believe the best is yet to come. I remember looking at a 27-year stock chart of Amazon. And the quote was, had Jeff Bezos quit in year 20, he'd only created 7% of the company's value. 93% came in years 21 through 27. That number may even be bigger now as a ratio. It might be 5 and 95. So I think there is an animating idea of just continuing to show up. And we're in year 17 now. And you never know who is waiting, who is watching. We still don't have a single philanthropist of note in the entire world who has raised their hand and said, hey, I'm going to work on water. Y'all are working on health and education and women and girls and gender equality and economic development. You know what? I found the one thing that sits underneath almost every 
problem related to extreme poverty, and that's water. So I'm going to take that on. We still don't have that. You know, there is no Bloomberg, Gates, Elon, Bezos. There's nobody who's kind of raised their hand. No corporation has raised their hand and made any sort of significant commitment towards this or really move the needle forward. So I think as we just, you know, keep our heads down and every year, you know, try to grow the organization, grow our community, grow our impact, we we put ourselves in a situation where hopefully we build trust, we build credibility, uh, we build the systems and the infrastructure now, you know, across over 20 countries to be able to absorb that future interest in water and hopefully the future capital that comes to this space. I think part of the reason I am so compelled by the story of Charity Water is your ability to tell it, both here, in video, on your website. Did you know how important that aspect would be to your success when you started? I didn't. I didn't. And I think it's a little bit innate. I don't think in statistics. You know, they don't move me. I really think in stories. And I'm also a visual thinker. You know, I took photos early on with Charity Water. Now we have far better, more accomplished photographers who are willing to often donate their time and go out and document this work. But I think I've realized the power of it over the years. I'll give you an example. I wrote this chapter in my book, which was probably the most moving and devastating story for me over 17 years. And if I gave you the statistics, okay, 700 million people in the world don't have water. Women are walking hundreds of millions of hours every year that they're wasting. Up to 50% of the disease in many of these countries is caused simply by bad water. Half the schools throughout the developing world don't have water or toilets for their students, right? I mean, I could statistic after statistic, but if I told you that I was in Northern Ethiopia once and somebody came up to me in a $5 a night hotel room lobby, kind of the restaurant lobby and said, Hey, you're the charity water guy. We've heard of you. We know the impact you're making up here. Let me tell you a story. He sits down and he says, I'm from a remote village. The women in my village, they used to all walk eight hours a day. And he goes, there was this one woman and at the end of one of her walks, before she got home, she slipped and she fell. And all the water that she had just walked for spilled out into the ground. And she had this clay pot on her back and the clay pot shattered. And there were shards all over the path. And he said, she didn't go get another pot. She didn't go back and go refill the water. He said she took a rope and she climbed a tree and she tied a noose around her neck and she hung herself. And in the center of my village, and we found her body swinging from a tree. And he let that sit. And they said, the work you're doing is important. And he walked back into the kitchen. I remember thinking at first, that's not true. That's what you tell the humanitarian aid worker to make us feel great about the work we're doing in the country. But I think the power of story, you know, that nagged at me. And a couple months later, I told my wife, I said, I need to go and see if this is true. I need to go and see if this woman lived. And I need to see the tree. And I wound up flying back to Ethiopia and flying up to the north and then driving four hours, got to the end of the road, renting a donkey and a camel and putting a little backpack and, and tent and then walking nine hours over the mountains to reach this village. It was called Maida. And over the next week, I lived in this village and I walked in her footsteps and I met her mother and I met her best friend who walked for water with her that day. And they had kind of split at the end of the walk, her friend going to her house and her name was Leticiros walking towards her house. 
And what I didn't know until I lived in this village was that she was 13 years old when she died. I was imagining someone towards the end of her life when she was described to me as a woman. She was a teenage girl. And I saw where she got her water. I visited her grave. I talked to the priest who gave her ceremony. I interviewed her friends who told me what she was like. She had vision. She wanted to get out of this village. She wanted to become a doctor, a nurse to help people. And I remember just standing next to the tree, which was this frail little tree. And there was a dirt path that ran next to the tree. You know, imagining a 13-year-old girl's body hanging with a noose around her neck and water off in the dust and shards of clay pot. And it angered me. I came back, you know, with a driving desire to do more because kids shouldn't be hanging themselves because they were born in a village without water. And I remember, you know, the last thing just about this story, what struck me, you know, as I thought of, well, this is a tough story. I almost need to be careful telling the story, but I asked her best friend, I said, why do you think she took her life? And her friend said, you know, this is through a translator in the local language, Degrinia. Her friend said, shame. Because it was her role to go and get the water for the family. And not only had she let the family down through her carelessness, slipping and falling, she'd also broken the clay pot, which was a valuable asset. And the shame of her failure would have been probably too much for her to go back and face her family. So there's statistics, and then there is the story of a real life person who's just one of those 703 million people that certainly resonated with me. I was able to connect to the idea of shame. I was able to connect to futility, to a situation that you just don't know how to get out of. So you just have to keep doing it every single day. And wanting, Chris, to be a part of that answer to the next 13-year-old girl that I could get to. Makes me want to make sure if there's not a well in, the, in that village, can we start do a fundraiser to put a well in that village? I'm hoping there already is. This is years ago. Okay. So I hear you. The, the storytelling there pales in comparison to the numbers. And when I think about my own ability to storytell, I think you're far superior and I need to work on that. Is that something you learned? Is that something that was practiced? How can you draw people in? I go to the movies a lot by myself. I think we're creatures of story. My wife was laughing at me the other day. I spent three and a half hours alone in the new Scorsese movie because I grew up and I did a couple of years in film school and he's a great storyteller. So I'm constantly trying to immerse myself in stories that have nothing to do with charity water, but watch people who are masters of the craft. There's no formula. I mean, I'm never sitting down and like saying this, then that, then this, you know, the hero's journey or I've never read Joseph Campbell's work. I mean, I'm familiar kind of with the idea of the hero's journey. But I'm a chronological thinker. So it's kind of this, then that, then this, then that, then this. I feel like just because I put everybody on such a downer there, I'll tell just one other kind of story on the opposite end of that. One of my favorites over the years, and we have so many stories, myriad stories that we've come across of just extraordinary people and extraordinary lives impacted by not having water, impacted by having water. There's this woman named Helen that we met in northern Uganda. And Helen was kind of the end of middle age and she was a mom. She had a bunch of kids. And our team was 
visiting Charity Water completed projects. And when the community knows you're coming, Chris, there's a lot of fanfare. I mean, they roll out the red carpet, they're bringing goats and chickens and eggs, and there are speeches and there's dancing and there's singing. There's a real honoring of the people who have come just to learn more about the community. So, the team had done four with fanfare, and this was like the fifth at the end of the day. And they were trying to sneak into this village just to see the water point in action and kind of almost sneak up on it and say, hey, were people using it? And what did it feel like around the well? Well, Helen had somehow gotten wind. So, she leads this welcoming party of women and they're dancing and they're singing and they're welcoming the team in. And after that stops, we sit down with Helen and we said, just tell us your story. You know, now you have water. It's feet from your home. How is your life different now? And Helen begins to tell us the story of what her life was like before. She used to go get 10 gallons of water. So, two kind of big yellow jugs. Think of what you've got in your garage for your riding mower or the little gas tank. And she would carry two of these very heavy, 40 pounds each. And she said, because the water was so far away, I always had to make these choices. There's never enough water. So, what would I do with the water today? And then she listed, well, could I, I could cook, I could clean, I could garden, I could wash my kids' bodies, I could wash my kids' school uniforms. And she said, there was just never enough water. And she said, as a Ugandan woman, we put our families first. She said, now that I have clean water, feet from my house, she said this, she said, now I am beautiful. And our team didn't quite get it. We're like, hell, but of course, you're this beautiful Ugandan woman. And she goes, no, I don't think you understand. She goes, now I finally, for the first time in my life, in this village, have enough water to wash my face and my body and my clothes. And she said, I am beautiful. She said, look at me. I'm looking so smart. And you know, we'd never quite thought of water in that way before until we sat down with a woman and just listened to her simply tell her story. And water to her meant dignity. Water meant beauty. We'd been talking about water as health and, you know, rattling off statistics of disease and, you know, water is educate. Water to her meant something deeply personal. And, you know, when I tell that story, you know, for me, it, it also like what an extraordinary thing to be able to give a woman, especially a woman who was sacrificially giving for her family. She wasn't using the water for herself. She was using her limited water that she was walking hours for, for others, for the benefit of others. And now she finally had enough to take care of herself. I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of that? I feel like what you've just given everyone listening is not only an incredible story about water and the impact it can have, but an example of how taking the time to pull stories, whether it's from your life, whether it's from the lives of people that you work with, the companies you work with. And turning them into something that's more than a set of figures or facts. And I so often default to the transactional information like, oh, water could give someone this, 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 this. And I just need to stop and pause in the future and really realize that taking the time to tell that story, which you'd think as someone who talks to a microphone for a living would innately have as a common practice. But I just think if there's a lesson that I've taken away from the last few minutes, it's just how powerful that can be and how it's not limited to someone in your role. It's not a skill that only matters if you're raising money for charity. It's something that probably matters in all aspects of life. That's right. I mean, some of the greatest entrepreneurs are storytellers. 
It has to be true. I'll say that, Chris. It has to be true. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, there can be over embellishment and people can get really carried away. So a story is powerful when it is true. And often the details in a story make it true. It would not have been true for me had I not lived in Letikiros's village, had I not stood next to that tree, had I not walked in her footsteps down the ravine, had I not talked to the other women at that same source of water. So for me, the proximity and the immersion to the story was really important. And then the details emerge from those, which can really move people because the details also remind people that that it's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's not a general, the, the specificity, you know, Helen, I mean, I have a picture of her in her dress. So if I were to do this on stage, I would show you Helen dancing and I would show you the two yellow cans. And then I would show you a portrait we took of Helen as she is radiantly beaming. And you would look at her green kind of paisley dress and you would notice, wow, it really does look clean. I can't see any dirt on that. So I think showing as well as telling is is often really, really important. And it's not just for story. I mean, I, let's take an example because you've taken a lot of these stories and made videos, put them on the site. I'm referencing one in particular that you happened to share before we got started. The financial impact to the organization of telling these stories is, is also great. So it's not just storytelling for storytelling's sake. The the time you spend in that village, which I think sometimes comes across as not from you, but like you, you're brainstorming these ideas and you're like, do I really want to spend a week of my life collecting a story? And I think one thing I've taken from our conversation is the value of that story could be even greater than the time you spent collecting it. I agree. Look, stories can move people. I mean, I really think about storytelling is, is this story going to bring out something valuable? in the people that might encounter it. I'll just give you one other example. We'll probably talk about the film that the people could go actually see some of these images. But there's a famous donor story where there was a, a nine-year-old girl named Rachel Beckwith in Seattle, Washington. And she saw me talk. And at the time, I would ask everyone in the audience to donate their next birthday to Charity Water. And I'd say, you don't need any more stuff. You don't need toys. You know, women, you don't need handbags. Guys, you don't need wallets. Like, we have enough stuff. Humans don't even have water. So, turn your birthday into a giving moment. And I thought the sticky marketing message would be, ask for your age in dollars. So, if you're turning nine, ask everyone for $9. If you're turning 89, ask everyone for $89. And Rachel took me seriously at this and she donates her ninth birthday and she sets a goal of $300 which was going to help the time 10 people get access to water. And she cancels her birthday party, won't accept gifts, and she raises $220. So she falls short in her goal. And she tells her mom she feels like she's failed and she's going to try harder next year. And her mom's like, hey, I think you're pretty awesome. I mean, you raised $220 and just you care so much about people you've never met living an ocean away. I mean, we should all be inspired by you. Well, right after her birthday, she dies in a car crash. There's a 25 car pileup on an interstate in Seattle. She's the only fatality. Tractor trailer, jackknifes. Her mom was driving. Her sister was in the front. She was smashed in the back seat. And I was in Africa at the time. I was in Central African Republic. I remember landing the next day at JFK, turning on my phone, the Blackberry at the time. And her pastor had 
emailed me to let me know of this little girl in his Seattle congregation who had donated her birthday, had raised $220, and then had passed away. And he asked me, could we reopen her campaign? And he was going to just ask everybody in the church to donate $9. Long story short, people get wind of this campaign. And a lot of people, Chris, donate $9. And it spreads to the New York Times. And Nick Kristoff picks it up. It spreads to the morning shows, starts spreading to Europe. And then one of the coolest things was people in Africa start donating $9 in Rachel's name. She goes from $220 to $1.3 million in donations. She inspired almost 60,000 complete strangers to give. And what was even cooler was so many of those givers then went on to donate their next birthday that inspired by this sacrificial nine-year-old girl who really should want toys or whatever the thing that a nine-year-old should want for themselves. I think it so inspired 60,000 people. They said, not only can we give to honor her last wish, but we could also follow the lead of a nine-year-old girl. That story as tragic as it is, has put so much good into the world beyond the 100,000 people that now have clean water. I mean, she, she wanted to help 10 people while alive. She's now brought clean water to well over 100,000 people. Actually got to take her mom and her grandparents on the one-year anniversary of her death, took them to Ethiopia, and they went village to village to village to village. And they personally met thousands of people who had clean water because of their daughter, because of their granddaughter. But I think that you know, that story is good in the world. And, you know, maybe people have heard that story, didn't even donate a birthday to Charity Water, but they donated it for some other cause or or for cancer research or, you know, to build a school. I know the part of this story that changed for you was when you started, when you took this trip and, and you just talked about taking Rachel's family on a trip. How much of the perspective from travel and seeing people in other cultures and other circumstances has given you the perspective and gratitude you have? And how valuable do you think that is as a mechanism for changing anyone's perspective? Chris, I get asked a lot, you know, having done this for close to 20 years, you know, what keeps you going? How can you still get up and just do this day in and day out? The travel is a piece. So I make sure it's never too long before I am on the ground in these communities, connecting with the people we are hoping to serve and the people we're serving. So that grounds me. It roots me. I've been to Africa more than 55 times now. I've been to 72 countries around the world. And living in these villages, I just got to take my six and eight-year-old this March for the first time to Uganda, which is where Charity Water's first well was. And, you know, I had my kids carrying water. I had my kids asking questions of communities. And my kids are born into a middle-class life. They will never have to drink dirty water as long as they live. And I wanted to share that experience with them as well. I got to bring you know, some of our major donors' kids as well on that trip. And it was just really impactful. So, for me, it is very, very important. Brian Stevenson uh, at EGI talks a lot about proximity. You know, There's a power, there's a credibility that comes when you're in proximity to your issue you know, to the, the, the passion and the purpose. Um, I had that proximity for the first two years, you know, on that mercy ship embedded with these doctors. I had the proximity because I was scrubbed up with a camera in an eight and a half hour surgery, watching them remove a tumor or put somebody's body back together who had been burned by rebel soldiers during the war. 
that has helped. So I'm always looking for that and trying to make sure that I'm never too far away from the issue that I'm advocating for or the people who we're serving. And obviously travel to Africa with kids is is a big trip that not everyone can take. What other things are you doing as a, a father or even for yourself to kind of create that culture of gratitude, of selflessness, of generosity, of giving in your family? I like that you started with gratitude because that is the one practice that I am very faithful to with the kids. So we play the gratitude game every night. We go around. If I'm doing bedtime alone without my wife, it's 30. So everybody's got to do 10 and you can have one repeat. So, you know, we're looking at 27 unique things that we're grateful for every single night. And, you know, sometimes if it's an early bedtime, I'll push them to do 20. And just the practice. And sometimes you get like, I'm thankful for mom. I'm thankful for the dog. I'm thankful for our house. I'm thankful for church. I'm thankful for, you know. But I've gotten some unbelievably creative, really profound things out of the kids and I think even out of myself, things that have kind of surprised me when you really go into that posture of gratitude. So, that is that is practice that I think has really enriched uh, the lives of our family. Um, you know, I think, right, not everybody can take a trip and I mean... We got back. My wife's like, I'm never doing that again. I mean, seven flights in seven days, time zones, 14 hours on Emirates through Dubai. You know, it, in, in coach? the back of the bus was, oh, bro, all coach. Yeah. Actually, that was seven out and back in coach with kids. It was rough. But we would have not traded that experience. And, and of course, we would have done it again. And I think my wife would have done it again too. Well, when it comes to the charitable world, I feel like... I don't have the perspective you do, and you've gotten to know this industry probably much more than most people. I'm curious, as people think about causes they want to support, obviously, you know, you'll encourage them to take a look at what you're doing, and I will as well. What advice do you have for people when they find a cause and actually finding the right organization? As much as I love the 100% model, I think it's fairly unique. And so finding the right organizations can be tough. And I know in the recent past with different disasters and you know war zones people have you know made these lists of 20 different organizations but it seems very hard to kind of evaluate an organization in the nonprofit sector i think it starts with finding causes that you're passionate about learning about those causes maybe more than what you're asking chat gpt or you know browsing one article educating yourself on these causes and then trying to research organizations that are well run and are transparent I certainly do not think... In fact, I don't even advocate other people starting charities to adopt the 100% model. It was right for us 17 years ago. It continues to be right for us going forward. But what I really was trying to say back then is people just want to know where their money's going. They want transparency in that. If I told your listeners today that the greatest need at Charity Water was a new expensive copy machine... Because we needed to print a bunch of paper copies and, you know, it was going to be $3,000 or something. People would donate for a copy machine to meet a need, to meet a specific need if they knew how that would move the mission forward. We don't need a copy machine, but, you know, you could argue that'd be like the unsexiest cost ever is like something that prints paper. But if those papers were valuable to the continuation of the mission, people would step up. It's often, I think, the 
opacity. It's the not knowing where the money goes. You know, it's the fine print during many of the disasters where you find out actually $100 million that was given went into an endowment, which won't see the light of day. Because in that fine print, the organizations say, well, if we overraise what we can spend, you know, we can do anything with this money. I remember to that end, there was a very famous example years ago during the tsunami, I believe it was, where Doctors Without Borders overraced significantly and they tried to refund everybody's money. And they tried to say, here, take your money back. We got what we needed. Can't spend it in this intended way. And what do you think 99% of people did? Said, keep the money. But thank you for telling us. You know, so that move would have built so much trust because there was integrity in that move. There was transparency in that move. And I think that's often what is lacking sometimes in the sector, where when you really follow the dollars, you're not always thrilled with what happened with them. How would the average person go through that process? Like, what would you practically do? Let's say there's a tsunami. You'd read a 990, which is one. So you read a 990. I mean, every organization publishes their 990. So you can see how they're spending their money, how much on marketing, how much on office costs. You can really see where the money is going out. That's one document. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that don't put that up online. So that's one flag. Somebody sent me due diligence. Oh, check out this organization. I said, well, they've been around for seven years. They haven't posted a single financial online. You know, that's, that's not even legal. So a charity is forced to publish their federal filed, it's like your tax return every single year. And that needs to be found online. So there's actually a lot of just simple best practices that aren't happening. I'm a big Dan Pilata fan. If people don't know him, he gave a very famous TED talk on kind of the overhead myth. He wrote a book called Uncharitable. He's got a film coming out in the next month or so. And I am not an advocate for these tiny overheads. I'm really an advocate for well-run, efficient organizations who are growing their impact, who are trying to put more and more money out into the field or directly to the cause. And that is driving everything at the organization. The Wounded Warriors story is probably the most famous. I remember they were much vilified for a long time. And I sat with Steve Nardizzi once, who was their kind of co-founder. And the way that he explained it to me was so simple. He said, I took this organization over. We were raising $8 million a year for veterans. And I might get this slightly wrong, but he said $8 million was not even a fraction of what was needed. And I learned that every dollar I would put into marketing, I could return about 50 cents. So that sounds, whoa, horribly inefficient. But he said, I wanted to market and grow the organization. And then I would kind of worry about efficiency later when we got up to scale. And I think he took the thing to 450 million. Now, again, I don't remember the exact ratio, but let's say at 450 million, half of the money was going directly to help veterans. Well, he just took an efficient organization at 8 million going out to a much less efficient organization, but $225 million was going out in impact. And I think he never really got the chance with his team to dial it back down and go back to efficiency at scale, which was going to be possible because so many of those people were monthly givers. So there was a high cost to acquire, but then you got a long tail. So when you shut off that marketing spend... And by the way, I mean, Disney Plus, they went from zero to 100 million users, I think, in the first year, just by spending billions and billions of dollars of marketing. We're not seeing that same marketing blitz in year two and year three. So, I'm with you that 
These are often really wise investments that people need to make. But you ask these questions and you start to really understand more about the organization's leadership, more about their history. You can make some pretty good decisions with some more information. And are any of these sites that provide ratings, I'm sure maybe you don't want to speak ill of them, but how much faith do you put in your own research versus the rating from a charitable rating site? Yeah. Well, we've been fortunate. I mean, we've had the highest ratings from all the sites. I am very cynical about the methodology. I mean, it's just a formula. You know, it's a 990 is getting put through a variety of metrics. And I think that's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) I'm like, man, do I want to even open that? I think they are a good place to start. They're certainly a good place to start maybe weeding out some of the egregious actors. But it's looking at overhead. It's looking at some very simple metrics. That is not necessarily a an indicator of the impact they are having by moving their mission forward in the world. And simply because it can't. I mean, there's one and one and a half million charities or something in America. So, you know, imagine it's the same thing with the IRS. Like imagine assigning 1.4 million, you know, let's go do deep dives in all these organizations. It's just, it's not even feasible. So I know a big part of what you guys have done well is around tracking your impact and effectiveness as an organization. I'm curious if you've ever thought about that perspective on a personal level and how you or anyone listening might be able to apply some of those lessons to track the impact they're having with their own lives or with their own wallets or in their own careers. I mean, Chris, I'm probably a bad guy to ask that question to because my KPIs are pretty simple because this is my life's work. It's people that have access to clean water because of the organization we're built, because of the movement that we are growing and how effectively we're deploying capital to change lives. So we have a pretty simple output. I have a personal goal of helping at least 100 million people. So that is a benchmark that's out there for me. And we've helped 17 million people. So if we continue to this path, I would be probably far too old to realize that. So some exponential growth is certainly required to achieve that personal goal through work. When I think about my family, it's all about character. It's all about virtue. It's instilling compassion, integrity, generosity into the lives of my children. Do they tell the truth? Do they admit when they're wrong? It's all kind of soft stuff. I can care less if they come and work with me or you know go work at a bank. It's I'm really interested in the people that they become and the way that they do things, whatever they do, you know, are they doing it with the utmost integrity? You know, are they doing it by telling the truth? Are they treating people with kindness and respect? So I think two very different metrics, you know, obviously I'm trying to do the same thing as we build the culture of the organization. Are we living up to our values? Are we good all the way to the core? You know, is there anything that is not working that we need to go and fix? Is there anything that's hypocritical? You know, are we saying anything that we actually can't deliver on? So we're constantly asking ourselves those questions as a culture as well. You mentioned legacy a bit earlier. And and I know Charity Water's work has had a lasting impact on communities. And in a way, that impact is part of your legacy. I'd love to explore this concept of leaving a meaningful legacy and making a lasting difference in the world. And is that something you think about a lot? It's interesting. I probably think about it less for me. And more of encouraging other people to think about it. But I guess I would think about it as it's really positional or it's an intention 
of a life. I don't think legacy is like, okay, well, I tick these five boxes or, you know, they're going to read at my funeral, A, B, C, D. I think of it more as going through life. And I said this earlier, but asking the question, how can I take what I have, what I've been blessed with? I mean, everybody listening to this has been blessed, has certainly many things to be grateful for. And how can I use that in the service of others? I think it's that simple. And that is really then a legacy of giving. It's a legacy of compassion. It's a legacy of generosity. That will manifest itself in different ways through different seasons of life. One of my dreams at some point is to write a million dollar check to a charity. I have wanted to pay that forward for 17 years. You know, we've been able to turn that million dollar gift into now, you know, well over $800 million raised. And I think I I was able to give that back to that donor saying, you believed in me. We've honored this 100% model with absolute integrity now for 17 years. And we've kind of turned that one talent into 800 more and growing. But I'd like to do it personally, Chris. You know, and we're not going to do it through my salary at Charity Water, but I'd, I'd love to not just give advice not just fund water projects across 21 countries. It'd be fun to write a check and change the game for a small charity the same way somebody changed the game. So I don't know if I'll ever get the opportunity to do that. But I think, you know, if I came into money in some way where I had the ability to do that, I'd be more likely to do that than to try to go blow a million dollars on, I I don't know. (laughs) I guess it doesn't buy that much anymore, but rather than trying to upgrade myself to business class flights for the next five years or something. I'd want that to be useful. This has been amazing. I appreciate you sharing your story and the story of Charity Water with everyone here. We didn't even mention where people can find that video we referenced earlier. So maybe let everyone know where we want to send them right now. If you'd like to see the video or you're looking for some way to get involved with us, probably the best place to go is The Spring. It's thespring.com. It's where that video lives that's had over 100 million views now across platforms. And The Spring is just very simply an online community of people who show up every month. It's like Netflix or Spotify. You pay them every month, except we will not send you any music for free. We will not send you any TV or movies. We will take 100% of your money every month and we will turn it into clean water for people in need around the world. And I was actually with Daniel Ek in Ethiopia who founded Spotify and was helping me kind of move a lot of our one-time giving to subscription. And that idea and that community has been really transformative. We tripled the organization's impact since we started that. And you know, the average is, you know, it's $40 to give one person clean water. So there's probably a lot of people listening you know, who could donate $40 a month and not even really feel that pain, but know that every single month, one more person is getting access to clean water. If I had one ask of people to consider, yeah, there's people that give $10 a month that are broke college students. We have people in their 90s on their pensions who give $10 a month. And every four months, a person moves from dirty water to clean water, which is a real big impact. So check out the video, share it with your friends. A lot of the images, Rachel's stories in that video, you get to see what she looked like and just some really cool stuff and images in there. Well, Scott, I appreciate you being here. I've been a Charity Water supporter throughout the years and will continue to be. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Give me the opportunity. 
Thank you everyone so much for joining me. No matter how many times I hear the Charity Water story, I get inspired every single time. And so this time I'm excited that hopefully we're gonna be able to build a well. If you wanna contribute to the Daffy campaign, you can go to allthehacks.com slash water. And like I said earlier, Amy and I are personally gonna match the first $5,000 to help get to our $10,000 goal. Though if we get there quickly, I'm gonna raise that limit and we'll go for two or more wells. We'll go for two or three or how however many wells we can build. Reminder that you don't need to open up an account at Daffy. You can contribute directly at allthehacks.com slash water. Reminder that you don't need to open up a donor advised fund at Daffy to contribute. You can do that directly at allthehacks.com slash water. But if you do want to set up your donor advised fund at Daffy first, you can get an extra $25 to donate to this or any other cause once you make your first contribution. And you can get that $25 at allthehacks.com slash Daffy, D-A-F-F-Y. And once you're all set up, you can go to our campaign at allthehacks.com slash water to contribute and get your match. Both those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Finally, even if you don't want to contribute, you can always go to allthehacks.com slash water to see our progress. Thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays, and I will see you next week. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. So I want to talk about an amazing resource, the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where every week, NerdWallet's in-house experts and financial journalists set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. The nerds have already helped me get smarter about saving money on groceries, avoiding some of the latest financial scams, and boosting my credit score since it's actually been going a little bit up and a little bit more down lately as I've been taking advantage of a few recent credit card offers. They also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life so you'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.